She could be a lizard. She could be the old licky lizard lips. Hey, Michelle. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. Perky. You're looking perky. You're perky. Am I perky? Yeah, you perky? Well, I am perky, but when we were growing up, perky meant... Puking. Yeah. Oh, I perked up. You perked up. Mum? Mum, the birds just perked up. But we had a bird called Mr. Perky. I can't even believe you said that. It's all about the birds. We had birds last week. We did. We did psychic birds. Well, yes, absolutely. Animals coming back as spirit form. We've got quite a lot of that in our back catalogue, haven't we, Michelle? Indeed, we do. And in fact, I had a conversation last night where people were telling me about psychic pets. So I think we need to put a pin in that and revisit. Absolutely. I know for a fact that our resident mystic... Who's modern. Who's modern. (laughs) Tamira. Tamira. She has a lot of information about psychic pets. I know that for a fact. So we'll get in touch with her. We should just introduce ourselves very quickly. I'm Geordie. And I'm Michelle. And hi, you're eavesdropping on us today. Yes, you are our eavesdroppers, but we don't mind. No, we do not. We encourage it. And you know what? I have a little... Stat! Stat me up with this. Okay, let's hear a stat. Stat time! Well, thanks to our amazing eavesdroppers, we are now in the top 5% of podcasts globally! Top 5! Top 5! Whoop, 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 whoop! Oh my so thanks, God. guys. I know we've jumped five whole percentage points. We have jumped up into the into the fifth percentile. Could you say it like that? Good on you, everyone, for eating. Thank you, guys. That does actually mean that we are one of probably a trillion podcasts that are being listened to, and it doesn't make us particularly special, but better than 10%. Better than it 10. It is. It is. So I thought that was something to celebrate, something to have a little champagne or Well, maybe we should pop a little something special over on our patreon page that's right people you can put a little tip in our jar or you can contribute monthly and get extra droppings definitely and extra other things we haven't decided what yet because you're being a bit slow on the uptake but that's (laughs) fine we can wait we can wait something i can't wait to tell you about is there is more on my favourite and yours, Uh Melissa Caddick. Wow. Okay, Michelle, hit me with your figure sticks. (laughs) What? Oh, my God. (laughs) I don't even know what you're doing. Hit me. Hit me. So, me. (laughs) That's what he says. That's how he sings it. (laughs) I know. He sounds like it's straining when he says that. But, yeah, Melissa Caddick, she she is the story that just keeps running and running. It just yeah. keeps going. So it's all kicked off again. So right. anyway, I'll just obviously recap. Just give a little backtrack. Some people don't know who she is. Yeah. For brand new eavesdroppers who haven't yet delved into the, that catalogue, Melissa Caddick was the missing Sydney fraudster who swindled her friends and family out of more than $25 million. Then she cut off her own foot to pretend well. she's dead. That's not proven. I know, I know, I know. That's, That's Michelle's. <laughs> that is Michelle's theory. I think it's the bikers. Anyway, go back a year and listen to our first episode on Melissa. Yeah. Well, like I said, she's back in the news over the past few weeks. And this case has a lot of attention. So one of Australia's biggest newspapers, Sydney Morning Herald, mm. have teamed up with 60 Minutes. Oh, my God. Powerhouse. I know, power, <laughs> powerhouse. <laughs> They've got a podcast called Liar Liar. 
Melissa Caddick and the Missing oh, Millions. Wow. I think they stole that headline from us because I didn't say lie, lie, but I did say Melissa Caddick and the Missing Millions. I yes. think they've been eavesdropping on us. Anyway. They have because that's, they've pushed us up into the 5%, haven't they? I reckon that's what it is, mm-hmm. yes. So there's a journalist called Kate McClearmont and she has revealed some new details not previously known in this case. Right. So... The podcast claims that they've uncovered evidence that Melissa wanted to borrow a big sum of money from a dodgy lender, which she was then going to invest in cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. There's speculation about why she wanted to do this. And there was a psychologist who weighed in on this saying that she obviously was getting the guilts. My words, not his. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and that she wanted to sort of hit the jackpot with, with buying crypto, then withdraw all the money and pay everyone back. Like her parents and whatnot. Yeah, and her friends. But I'm mm. not sure about that because... Because she properly buggered them, didn't she? She did and she didn't care. She was buying diamonds and blowing the cash on holidays and meanwhile this is all like her friends and in particular her particular her parents her particular parents. La la la. Yeah, yeah yeah not good it's, that's all of their that's their pension they've got nothing now these people have been left with nothing so i think even if she had borrowed that dodgy money put it in crypto made a fortune i mm-hmm. reckon she would have gone oh oh i just saw a nice little diamond at canturi or whatever like i think she would have spent it i don't think she wouldn't would have given with it this back. mindset, Michelle, that you've just tainted Melissa Caddick with, <laughs> how do you think that a lady who loves the finer things in life would be so adamant that she's going to cut off her own foot and in particular let go of one of her favourite ASICS trainers <laughs> in order to make a big getaway? I don't think she thinks like that. I think it was the bikers. And I, when I say bikers, I don't mean BMX bandits. <laughs> No, you don't think those BMX bandits came after them? I don't see Nicole Kidman and other Australian actors, Ben Mendelsohn on BMXs coming after her. It's the bikey gangs. Well, do you know what? I'm off to Australia soon. I'm going to find you, Ben. I'm coming after you, Ben, and I'm going to get you on... Get your eavesdropping. Oh, poor Ben. He must be scared by that I think you'll find him in either Byron Bay, L.A., or maybe even in London. What, you don't think he's going to be hanging around in in Petersham in Sydney? Petersham, (laughs) no, possibly not. And definitely not Belconnen area of Canberra. Old Ben, anyway. Well, getting back to Melissa, I do think she'd cut off a foot to, like, throw off the police, but hey-ho. So there is another new fact that has come to light. It's all to do with the money she stole from her parents. And I base it on this, right? So they gave her $1.1 million to invest in an Edgecliff apartment because they actually sold their other – they sold their their house – she was like, oh, yes, give me the money and we'll put you in this nice fancy Edgecliff apartment near where I live. Well, they have been evicted oh, from no. their Edgecliff apartment. It turns out what she did with 600000 of the money that they gave her mm-hmm. to buy this Edgecliff apartment, she, she did. She spent it on a diamond, a flawless diamond. Oh, my God. And because of that, you know, the diamond's gone that's been seized – Parents are out in their asses. Like mm. this woman, this is why I put, I do not think she would hesitate in cutting off a foot. Because she messed it up so badly. Yeah, she stitched everyone up. This podcast also reveals that in hindsight, some of the friends that she defrauded and stole money from should have realized that they were being deceived because apparently, whenever she was lying, she'd give her, her lips a little bit of a lick. 
Oh, <laughs> that's her tell. That's called a tell. <laughs> a tell. Mm. So on the podcast, Faye Reed, who was one of the friends of Melissa's who got absolutely swindled, together with her wife, Cheryl Craft Reed, they handed over 800000 in super save, superannuation, that is, um, savings to Melissa and they lost it all. Superannuation is actually the Australian version of a pension, isn't it? Yes, it yeah. is. Yeah. You're super. And <laughs> Faye reckons that Melissa had this habit of licking her lips and she only put two and two together when she realised, okay, the lip licking must have been the lying. Right. Like connected. And she said that Melissa would go over to their house and talk over their finances all the time. And Faye remembers Melissa would just be like going for it, licking her lips. Licky, licky, lick, licks. Lick, licky, <laughs> lick, lick. And this is a quote from Faye. She says, it was slow and constant. Oh, God. She would talk a little bit and then lick her lips. Talk a little bit, then lick her lips. And I'm going, oh, my God, what's wrong with this woman? Is she a lizard? She could be a lizard. She could be <laughs> the old licky lizard lips. I don't know. Wow. So now that's sort of come to light that she was lying lip licker. Lying lip licker? That's hard to say. A lying lizard lip licker. Especially when you've got braces. It's not yes, easy to say that. Right. Anyway. And then reports surfaced earlier this week that mm. despite uncertainty as to whether or not Australian authorities would like, conduct a coroner's inquest into her disappearance. Because yeah. let's face it, all they've got is a foot. They don't have anything else, right? And that is, and I know I keep saying this, that is not conclusive evidence that lady is dead. She could have just lost a foot. Anyway. Yeah. Basically, like on Tuesday, they confirmed that hearings would take place between September 12 and 26 of this year Mm -hmm. into her disappearance because police have previously suggested that they think Melissa killed herself because when she supposedly went for that run early morning Mm -hmm. and left her wallet and keys at home and never obviously been seen again except for that foot, the police reckon, oh, that's, that's classic signs of suicide, but... I don't buy that. And mm. and you know what? There are some criminologists who are on the same page as me. All right. Throw the police off the scent, throw them a foot. I think it's remains though. You said it was remains. I think it's just like a little bit of like not even a whole foot. We're imagining like a Monty Python foot that's nice and cleaned, <laughs> cut off at the top. But actually it's probably just like a toe and a little bit of flesh. I don't know. It was inside the shoe. It was inside the shoe. And look, I'm just going to wrap up this final Melissa Caddick okay. update with. So do you remember we talked about Underbelly? It was the part of, they did a new season Dramatized. called Vanishing Act. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah fictionalised version of, of the case with lots of speculation. Well, I haven't seen it, but it ha- the first episode has aired. And I did a little quick roundup of some Twitter posts, which seemed to suggest that it was maybe quite shit. So uh-huh. there was, there, with one viewer actually tweeting, uh-huh. this already looks like a pile of shit. That's a quote. <laughs> <laughs> That's not promising. And I love this one. Another person tweeted, Melissa Caddick is sitting somewhere in Switzerland, drinking wine with her new prosthetic foot, watching an episode oh. of Underbelly about her. Well, maybe you'll be invited around to her condominium, Michelle, to <laughs> join her one <laughs> evening in front of the open fire on the deerskin rug. What do you say? I am going to have my eyes peeled for anyone looking like Melissa, drinking an Aperol spritz with a limping around robo with foot. Perfect <laughs> yeah. diamonds on every finger and half a foot. And so apparently this series starts off by saying, like, and this is what makes it 
everybody I think thinks it's so shit is it says supposedly and this is in Melissa like the character speaking supposedly in November I jumped off a cliff near my house in Sydney after I got busted and freaked out (laughs) if you believe that story then you'll believe anything but then again I found most people will believe anything. That's how I got rich in the first place. Licky, 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 lip, lips. Licky, licky, lip, lip, lops. Exactly. So, look, eavesdroppers. Yes. If anyone's watching it and wants to weigh in, get in touch. I'm all over it. I'm I'm all ears. I don't know how how you watch it if you're not in Australia. How do you do that? I'm not going to suggest that people illegally get a VPN and watch it. I'm not going to suggest that. Okay, fair enough. Okay, well, we won't do that then. Absolutely not. Well, that's fascinating, Michelle. Any, <laughs> maybe we should do an entire, what about a Patreon? And you know what else? We've got a few things to add on to our latest Patreon extra droppings because I've had a couple of listeners get in touch. Our resident statistician, Anna in France, she was the one who told us that we were in the top 10%. So big up to her. Yeah. Now, she also had something to say about two episodes ago when we spoke about Acts of God, my story that I told you about Kevin O. Smith, Pastor Kevin O. Smith, who did the massacre and was sacrificing his flock for Noah's Ark, etc. Well, I said at one point that he suggested they listen to reggae dance hall acts such as Buju Banton. And then I reminded you that in the 90s, Buju Banton had a song called Batty Boom Boom. No, Boom Batty Bye or something like that. It was Batty, Batty Boom Bye. Yeah, which actually turned out to be horrific. Did you listen to it? Uh, there's a link in the show notes, people. Okay. People. Well, listen. No, Anna was very concerned because she said poor old Buju Banton wrote Batty Boom Bye as a teenager, and he deeply regrets it now. And he's not yeah. a homophobe. He was actually 15 years old when he wrote it, and it was originally about a paedophile who was caught molesting young boys in Banton's neighbourhood in Jamaica. And he oh. went on to say that in recent days there has been a great deal of press coverage about the song "Boom Bye Bye." That's what it's called. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah, yeah. Bate Boom Bye from from my past, which I long ago stopped performing and removed from any platform that I control or have influence over. Banton told Urban Islands magazine or website banton hasn't performed the song since 2007 well i have got a link so it is out there but he's not in control no one's in control of the internet so poor old boojoo but he said that on release of after seven years in prison for i think some kind of drugs misdemeanor but he's out and he's and he's very well respected in jamaica and worldwide as a dance hall act then there's another (laughs) eavesdropper Björk van who is in Madrid, I think. He's not Spanish. He's Icelandic. And he likes he <laughs> likes snowy adventures, clearly. And he got in touch to let us know that there's been a follow-up on our Snowy Misadventures episode quite a few episodes ago. I can't remember which one that was. Oh, it was episode 10 of this season, mm. season 3, 2022, Snowy Misadventures, about the nine young Russian hikers who perished going on a cross-country skiing trek in the Ural Mountains. There's been some more information about that, but I'm not going to tell you. I think we should tune in. You should tune in to Patreon. Give us a tip. You can hear more about it. You're a tease, aren't you? You're a tease. Well, not only that, Michelle, but we've got two stories to tell today. What's our topic? Well, I'm calling it public transport disasters is what I'm calling it. Oh, all right. I'll go with that. Yeah. Okay. So... I don't know, Geordie, if you've been following the news in the past week. That's actually a broad statement. Don't even know what that means. But anyway. The answer is no. Okay, me either, really. But I have spotted this particular 
news piece, which it's about the Malaysia Airlines disappearance. Oh, right. That's fascinating. Yeah. And there's been renewed interest in it in the last few weeks. But I will say, Michelle, if it's not on 14 Times or the Daily Star, I won't have caught that. Jesus <laughs> the only, they're the only things I read. <laughs> These are in reputable newspapers. Do you remember when when this happened back in 2014? Yes, I do very much so. And it came hot on the heels of a Russian uh, Russian missiles downing another Malaysian Airlines. Yeah. Because I love to fly Malaysian. I think they're one of the best airlines and I haven't flown them since. Not that I fly very often. Well, we also had a pandemic. <laughs> so I didn't go into that Russian because they've said it's not that connected. That happened beforehand, didn't it? No, first? I thought it happened after. Maybe it was after. Yeah, yeah. I thought it happened after. Look, I'll put a, a link to that just to get because you know we're fast and loose facts here. Basically, it's one of those modern day mysteries that no one can really get their head around because yeah. it. To me, I remember when it happened, and I just could not comprehend that a plane could literally disappear. And the reason it's been in the news recently is because National Geographic have released a documentary about the crash with loads of new theories about what could have happened to it. And look, they call it Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, but it's been shortened to MH370. And I don't know why MH, but that's what I'm going to call it. That's what the internet calls it. So I will too. But I'm going to circle back here and just do, I think, a, a quick recap of what went down. So on March the 8th in 2014, Malaysia Flight 370, it was a Boeing 777, it departed Kuala Lumpur en route to Beijing with 239 people on board. But 40 minutes in to what should have been a six-hour flight, the plane massively diverted from its scheduled route and it flew off course towards the southern Indian Ocean. Then the flight just disappeared off radars, literally disappeared off all radars. And like I said, I just remember at the time being so shocked. Like, how does a plane disappear? No one knew where this plane had gone. And everything was just sort of best guesses, which, you know, we live in an age where we've never been more watched. We have satellites, we've got radars, we've got technology keeping tabs on everyone and everything at all times and it just seems insane that this plane has simply vanished and that's what happened because literally no one had a clue where this plane might have crashed right and when they realized that it hadn't touched down and look there's a lot of information tiny bits of information like the takeoff was fine it hit a cruising altitude of 10,700 metres, which was all fine. There is a, a reporting system that transmitted data, which was, you know, sent its last transmission, which was all fine. But then mysteriously, it got switched off. Right. The last voice communication from the crew was logged at 1.19am. And they can't 100% identify who made this last um, voice communication. But they think it probably was a pilot, but they don't know for sure. They And they said, all right, good night, Ooh. which seems pretty innocent, yeah. but not when you put that in the context of all the communications got switched off. Yeah. Did they lose track of them as well on the radar? Well, the thing was at one twenty-one, so two minutes after that last voice communication, the plane's transponder, which is like the system that communicates with air traffic control, like I said, was switched off 
just as they were entering Vietnamese airspace over the South China Sea. Mm-hmm. Then the plane didn't check in with controllers at Ho Chi Minh City as it flew into Vietnamese airspace. No distress call was received, just off radar. Then at 1.30, Malaysian military radars began tracking um, MH370 as it went off course. Then it was tracked that it turned around completely the opposite way and started flying southwest over the Malay Peninsula before heading over the Strait of Malacca. And that's a waterway that connects the Indian Ocean with the Pacific Ocean. Sounds like a Greek swear word. Malacca. I think it it was, wasn't it? Are you Malacca? (laughs) And then the military radars lost contact with MH370 as well over the Andaman Sea. Literally went off radar and no one has any clue. And the possibilities were endless with the first round of searches. So they decided to concentrate on the South China Sea. But after searches in that area found literally nothing, they decided to look at the point where the transponder was turned off. So they started searching around the Strait of Malacca and the Andaman Sea. But they found a big fat zero. Nothing was found. So then they widened the search. The search then like stretched from Java, southward into the Indian Ocean, southwest of Australia, into like across Asia, Vietnam, Turkmenistan, the Indian Ocean, southwest of Australia and Southeast Asia, Western China, the Indian subcontinent, Central Asia. Lots of places then. They had a lot of ground to cover. Well, that's the thing. They had no fucking clue. So they were just like, let's search everywhere. It literally brought up nothing. In short, the authorities just had no idea like where the plane went down, why it veered off course so dramatically. And, you know, the search for MH370 has become the most expensive search in aviation history. But they found nothing until 16 months after the plane went down, and this was in July 2015, a piece of debris washed up on Reunion Island. And that's in the Indian Ocean, and it actually belongs to France. And after loads of testing, it was confirmed to be a piece of, you know, on the wing, on Mm -hmm. a plane wing. When it flaps up. You've got those small flappy bits. Yep, it was one of those. Yeah. It was from MH370. And then over the next year and a half, 26 pieces of plane debris were washed up on shores of Tanzania, Mozambique, South Africa, Madagascar, Mauritius. Only three of these bits of plane were confirmed to be from MH370. Right. Okay. And two of those bits were from the cabin interior. And when wow. experts studied these pieces, they say that it indicates that the plane had broken up. Uh-huh. And I'm like, well, yeah, fucking cool. So it's broken up. If you're finding pieces, yeah, it's broken Maybe up. Maybe it broke up on landing, but are they suggesting that perhaps it broke up before landing, i.e. bomb? Well, that, again, yes. They don't know if it broke up in the air or on impact with the ocean. One thing they did discover, because they are quite clever, I guess, is that the wing piece found at Reunion Island, it did indicate that it was not a controlled descent meaning that it wasn't guided into the Mm -hmm. water. 
Which would be like an emergency. Yeah, okay. Maybe. Like an emergency landing versus a crash. Eight years later, there are still more answers and questions about what happened to MH370. When a plane just disappears, just vanishes, of course, the internet is going to go wild with conspiracy theories about what happened, right? So I did a roundup of some of the best ones out there. Okay. You know, people speculating what really happened. I know what one is already, the 37. You know the 37 one? No, I don't know the 37. Oh, well, we'll come back to mine. It's ridiculous. Okay. Well, I'm just going to put it out there because, come on, guys, you know what I'm going to kick off with. Lizards. Aliens. 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 (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) Now, look, of course, there are so many threads on Reddit that theorize that, like, Aliens hijacked the plane or aliens just plucked it out of the sky. Oh, my God. I know. Or broke off a little bit of the tail wing on the way. Yeah, just to like put us off the scent, a little bit like Melissa Caddick's foot. Or that the plane flew into a wormhole that sent it back in time. I think it flew off the edge of the flat earth. Oh, my God. Is that in there? Of course it did. No, but I (laughs) bet you that's what the flat earthers were like. He's gone straight off off the edge. There are also um, theories that a black hole ate the plane. What? I know that it just basically went into a black hole. I mean, the thing is that no one knows. There are also like a a, like a theory that it was alien abduction, and there are five percent of Americans apparently surveyed by Reason.com who do believe that the plane was abducted by aliens. And 5% in America is a huge number. It's very much like being top 5% of globally listened to <laughs> podcasts. It's a vast, yeah. vast number. It's not, it's not a very refined small number. It's huge. Exactly. And look, apparently there have been some um, UFO sightings in Malaysia. And, you know, people are pointing to that as evidence that, you know, aliens intervened and, and nicked this plane. There's a guy called, oh, sorry, a woman called Alexandra Bruce from Forbidden Knowledge TV. Uh, and she reckons uh, that she has data, radar data that proves that aliens took the plane. How she got that? I don't know. And she reckons there's footage on YouTube that shows that there's a presence of something that can only be termed a UFO in the skies over Malaysia and that it's aliens. Aliens took the plane. No. Nah. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, even I don't think aliens took this no. plane. Well, if you don't believe it, then it must be out there. I know. And look, I, you know, I always love to bring it back to aliens, you know. But in this, in this instance, there are a few more cynical, uh, sinister like ideas okay. here. One of the most plausible, supposedly, is that there was a cockpit fire. This theory actually comes from a pilot called Chris Goodfellow, and he reckons that if there was a fire in the cockpit, it would have led to the captain turning the plane around towards a nearby airstrip. So that would account for why the plane went off course. Right. And he reckons that the loss of communication with the cockpit is what would happen if there was an electrical fire. Plus, he reckons that the crew would have been really focused on flying the plane rather than radioing in a distress call. But I think that sounds a bit hokey because if you're in distress, I would say that you would be like, mayday, mayday or whatever you do. I'd say there's protocol and you would have been trained to touch base with the radar, with the ground force, ground forces, the ground base, (laughs) whoever. I I agree. I think there would have been a distress call. But he says if there was a fire, he thinks the pilots 
probably would have lost consciousness okay. because of smoke inhalation. And I do think that there is something in that. Mm. And then he reckons the plane would have pretty much been flying itself for hours until it ran out of fuel and crashed. It does sound like a nice, neat little wrap-up, but there's literally no evidence for that at all. So it's just a theory. Who knows? So if it, hang on. If it was flying for hours, the pilot's out cold. There's a fire where? In the cockpit. Yeah. Does that mean that the oxygen has knocked everybody else out? Yeah. And everybody's fallen asleep. Okay, because otherwise you'd have attendants trying to get in there, trying to figure out what to do next. I mean, look, Johnny, that's horrific if that is actually what happened. Because imagine like the cockpit, if there was an electrical fire, the cockpit probably would have been closed off, locked, right? Yeah. And imagine if they weren't all dead from smoke inhalation and they, they just knew for three hours they were circling and doomed. Jesus. I mean, that is that is actually too horrific to think about. So, this is good that we're talking about this like a week before you're about to take a long Thank distance. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not flying Malaysia. Not that I, I still would. There are so many question marks around this case. Right, okay. One of the theories is that Russian special ops took the plane. And you touched on this by talking about Russia. And this all came about because New York Magazine came up with a theory that Russian spies could have broken into the electronics room on the plane and a hijacker, who was obviously well-trained in this stuff, could have been like pulling the plane's electronics apart and faked some of the satellite data uh, that researchers have sort of been trying to use to figure mm. out where the plane crashed. Oh, you mean post-crash? So remember, you know, the military picked up some data signals, right. some radar okay. signals. So they, they messed with it from the ground? No, that there was a hijacker on board okay, right, and broke okay. into the electronics area of the plane and was manipulating on board to try and throw people off the scent. But to mm -hmm. me, that sounds all a bit like Bond. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's possible. And that sort of ties into like theories of a faked flight plan where a hijacker, Russian ops or not, concealed a, a flight a fake flight plan and from an uncontrolled airport and it's all quite far-fetched all of this but could Russia have been involved I don't know because you seem to have some ideas on that no no it's just unusual that first of all we lose the plane and the mm. next thing you know only a, f a few months later I can't remember the timeline Russia shot down a passenger Malaysian airline flight that was in their airspace but it wasn't illegal for them to be flying through it it was a massive mistake and they had to apologize yeah or was it I mean who knows what's that all about don't who know. knows I don't I don't know but I did read one theory about the 37 because it was MH 37 yeah well 370 Seven. 370. They were flying at 37,000 feet. This, that and the other. There was somebody on one of the forums like Quora or Reddit. This kind of stuff holds no, no truck with me whatsoever. This is yeah. very cute. Adding up cute. all the, the numbers. 37 this, 37 that. There were 37 passengers. There were 37 this. It went and if on you add and on two and, on. and one and this, it adds up to... Yeah. Adds up to no, yeah, sorry. Right. That's yeah. hokum. That's wrong. I didn't come across that. But I did hear that the pilot possibly could have been targeted and what you call it when they're groomed by a Malaysian rebel again like rebel oh. group that are opposing the Malaysian government and that he overpowered the co-pilot and 
suicide mission to the plane. Or he had, no, it's been covered up by the Malaysian government that he was negotiating and they didn't play ball. So he crashed the plane. And the Malaysian government are hiding the information. That is very possible because there's a lot of things that don't add up here. Basically, there was also a theory about a remote cyber hijacking. And there was a historian called Norman Davies who wrote a book called Beneath Another Sky, A Global Journey into History. And he reckons that flight MH370 had Boeing's Honeywell uninterruptible autopilot onboard computer which he thinks could have been hacked and then reprogrammed and flown to a secret location because he told the Sunday Times, and I've read this elsewhere too, so the plane cargo had like all of the logs of how much weight the plane was carrying, but then there was 89 kilos of cargo added to the cargo list after takeoff, and that's never been accounted for. And he reckons the plane may have been carrying sensitive material or personnel to Beijing that he reckons it could have been something or someone on board that plane that people did not want getting to China, getting to to Beijing. And that's why the plane was maybe remotely hijacked and crashed. I also heard that some people were able to reach their loved ones' phones that were ringing long after the crash. So some believe that they did land safely. Really interesting. Because, you know, there are other theories that like CIA was involved, that US Mm. military shot it down. Because apparently the atoll of Diego Garcia. Love that name. Sounds like a footballer. (laughs) And that's in the middle of the Indian Ocean. That's got a a US military base on it. And there was one sort of theory that suggested the plane was there on a kamikaze mission and that the US military shot it down before it could reach its target. But then the Americans would have had to fake the satellite data and the military radar data and scooping up all the bits of the plane. That obviously, of course, has never been proven and it ta- and that would require too many people to like keep yeah. quiet about what a mess what a mess this is crazy also ideas that north korea took mh370 because maybe this was that had something to do with south korea's claim that north korea took out a chinese plane earlier on the 5th of march oh. and there was a north korean missile just 7 minutes after this plane went down so and then 3 days later mh370 disappeared so some people are trying to connect these two but mm. again there's no evidence for that okay and then there was also an australian this happened in march 2018 some guy from australia reckoned that he'd found the wreckage mh370 using google earth it were, he'd been like combing the Indian Ocean on Google Earth for years looking for this plane. And yeah. he reckons he's found it and that it's riddled with bullet holes. Oh. And that it's located a few miles off Round Island, which is like governed by Mauritius. And that it's in part of um, it's in a part of the ocean that hadn't been searched by crews, and you know he also reckons that U.S. officials are refusing to search that area and are withholding information from the public. Mm. So I don't know, but it's a lot to look at. And look, there are other ideas that there was a, a diplomat on board that had sensitive information, and that's why 
it was specifically targeted and okay. shot down. There's like life insurance scams. Again, like there's connections between China and Edward Snowden. I mean, look, all you need to do is go online. There are millions of conspiracy theories, but the upshot here is basically the evidence they have is thin on the ground. The searches that they've conducted have basically brought up nothing. Three bits of of wreckage have shown up over the last eight years. That's it. Wow. Where this plane is, nobody actually knows. Or where it landed or what or happened what happened. To it. But we are none the wiser and maybe we never will be. And those families just have to mourn yeah. and just assume that they didn't make it. Yep. So there it is. That is shocking. Well, I think that we should put a pin in that, Michelle, and explore that further for our Patreon extra droppings. What do you think? Great idea. Get over to Patreon. Thanks, Michelle, for that, because it's fascinating and something that I do occasionally think about, especially when I'm 30,000 feet in the air. Oh, don't. Sorry, that's going to be me. (laughs) Real life. Real life. True crime. True crime. I've got some information here. You know, it's called public transport disasters and we don't want to scare people, but you know, shit happens, things go wrong. And I've got my story here from the Mirror, the Britannia website, BBC News, a combination of. I was thinking the other day about King's Cross because I was supposed to go there with the kids for a half term treat with my friends and their children, but I didn't make it. But you know that King's Cross is now unrecognisable since my commuting days working for Miss 60 and they had the headquarters, their fashion label from Italy. I used to work for them and their headquarters was on York Way, which was only a bus ride from the station. It looks completely different. It's been transformed, yeah. It has. It's really good. It's like a really cool ha- place to hang out. Cold drop yard and there's a <laughs> wild swimming pool and there's Deschum and all sorts of wonderful things. But in the summer of 2005, my parents kindly made the trip over from Australia to come and visit me while I was working. But I took the week off to be with them. And we had planned a day out with my friend Julius, who you know, who also worked for the fashion company that I worked for. It was Wednesday, the 7th of July. But then Julius called me very early in the morning and said, I can't get there. The tubes aren't working. There seems to have been an electrical fault. And just then my dad called out saying that something was going on. He was watching the news. So we all ran into the living room and discovered that the London bombings were happening as we watched, basically. 7-7, London bombings, 7-7, otherwise known as. We didn't know it then, but it turned out that it was a coordinated suicide bomb attack on London's transport network during the morning rush hour. It started at 8.50 in the morning, 10 to 9. Explosions ripped through three train stations on the London Underground, killing 39. And then sadly, at Tavistock Square near Edgware Road Tube, a bomb had also gone off on a bus that evacuated commuters had piled into the number 13. They were trying to get to work. They didn't realise what was going on. And unfortunately, one of those passengers that piled onto that bus was a bomber. He was on the upper deck and detonated his device, which was 10 pounds, 4.5 kilos of high explosives. And that killed 13 and injured over 100 people. And I had work colleagues on the bus behind that who witnessed this so they needed trauma counseling altogether more than 700 people were injured in the four attacks now they were carried out by they believe it was terrorists carrying backpacks 
their journey started at London's King's Cross station. There it is again, King's Cross. Yeah. But that's not what I wanted to talk about today, Michelle. I just gave you a quick rundown of that 7-7 because obviously it was a big deal. And King's Cross station was then shut yeah. for a while. A lot of the tube stations were and I had to do a different route into work. That wasn't the first national disaster that befell London's King's Cross station. Okay. You may not remember this, but there are plenty of Londoners and British people that do. On the 18th of November 1987, at approximately 7.30 in the evening, which was the back end of the rush hour, a fire broke out beneath Escalator 4. At that time, the escalators were wood, made of wood. I remember that. Oh, and filled with cigarette butts. People would be smoking down into the tube. Like- exactly. It was suspected to have been a match that was discarded by a passenger <gasps> because... Those are the days you you mistakenly think that you're allowed to smoke on the tubes at that point, but they weren't allowed anymore. They were allowed on the top decks of buses and on planes, restaurants and pubs, but smoking had been banned in all underground stations since a fire at Oxford Circus had broken out in 1984. So that's some years earlier. But people often lit their cigarettes on their way up the escalator before leaving the station. So this fire was fueled by a buildup of grease and dust that were inside this wooden escalator and it spread until smoke began to spew from under the steps and out into the main concourse. Jesus. But people were still allowed to use the escalator. What? I keep calling it an escalator. An escalator. <laughs> escalator escalator and trains were allowed to still pass through at different levels of king's cross as the flames grew because it's such a big myriad of a station it's enormous yeah it is it was difficult to get the info out and understand exactly where it was coming from exactly what was going on and unfortunately by the time this black smoke was pouring through the tunnels crowds of people are panicking screaming hammering on trains as they rush through the platforms without stopping some tried in vain to reach the surface through the fumes that were choking them and don't forget there are people who work there as well others tried to seal themselves in underground rooms to avoid the smoke heat and flames hoping to be rescued one survivor who worked for london underground was kathleen ord who was a ticket inspector okay she was trapped in one of those rooms it was the mess mess room below ground with a colleague she was reluctant in the aftermath to speak out because she feared for her job but she did say to the mirror at the time of her experience how she she and her colleague opened the mess room door when she heard screams and then saw all this this thick smoke and intense heat and they could see there was no way out for them. So she and her colleagues just shut the door, thought there's nothing we can do to help these screaming commuters and they began to stuff old newspapers and whatever they could find, tea towels, under the door to stop this thick smoke coming in yeah. and hoped that they would be rescued. And eventually they were, but they were in there for like two hours or something. Yuck, that's scary. Firefighter Stuart Button and his colleagues arrived first in the first fire engine that attended the scene. But minutes later, this fireball blasted up into the ticket hall and the time of 7.45pm was melted into the wiring of the digital clock (gasps) at the top of the escalators. The temperatures underground were up to 600 degrees Celsius. That's unimaginable. That's an inferno. That is absolutely terrifying. So these firefighters had to spray each other with the hoses just to keep themselves cool. So before that, the police had started evacuating passengers from 
7.39pm. At 7.42, they informed the booking office staff to leave, which they did in about a minute. But in the confusion, no one alerted the Bureau de Change staff or public toilets staff or people in the public toilets. So they were completely missed out. The fire services had had arrived at this point, led by station officer Colin Townsley. Now, a minute later, Colin Townsley was down in there looking at the fire before he returned to the ticket hall and he later died saving a passenger. At 7.45, this fireball arrived. So it ripped up through the top of the escalator. Somehow it must have been propelled by the oxygen at the top. Yeah. So that ripped through the entire ticket hall. It was the deadliest aspect of the fire and people were running right into the heart of it, unfortunately. So survivor Andrew Lee was coming up the Piccadilly line escalator when he noticed a large orange glow, then a sheet of flame that shot across the top of the escalator. The ceiling caught fire and debris started falling down and the escalator was still moving. So he turned around and went back down into the underground. God knows how. It must have been awkward. Maybe he slid down. I don't know. Because it must have been heaving with people trying to get out of this fire. People who who were at the top of the escalator were very badly burned. So he went back, Andrew Lee went back into the, back to the Victoria line and jumped on the next train out. Trains were still stopping, some of them. I mean, but that's quite lucky in a way because you think about how big the station is. King's Cross is absolutely massive and you can have lines that just never intersect. So you could, in theory, still have tubes running. Yeah. Absolutely. And what's happening on top doesn't affect what's happening on the lines below. below. But I will say anyone who's ever been on a tube anywhere in London in summer knows how hot it is. Yes. Add to that this pressure of fire. I I can't even imagine. It's awful. Well, this is winter. This is winter time. Even still. It's stifling down there. So there was another survivor who spoke to one of the publications I mentioned earlier. So Roger Crick, Mm -hmm. he led many to safety. Good on you, Rog. Like everybody else, he instinctively headed upwards through the worst of the fumes as soon as he smelled the smoke. He then found passengers in trouble. He said he was shocked also to see three or four bodies lying near him, but he had no idea what condition they were in. And until that moment, he hadn't realised the gravity of the situation. It was just a smoke-filled... There was no flames. There was no fire to speak of it was just Mm. smoke filled so then he raced up upwards two levels he became aware that clusters of people seemed frozen in panic so he grabbed them one by one and helped organize them into groups to reach the surface another survivor who is known as the most badly burned survivor is quasi afari minta he it was the face of the disaster he's had over 30 operations suffered horrific injuries to his head and upper body i'm not going to go into great detail because it's tragic what happened to him but he was hit in the face by the 600 degree fireball as he tried to escape the inferno quasi recalls standing on the platform when he heard an announcement that came over the tannoy from the fire services telling commuters that the station could go up in flames at any time. So he, like the others, jumped on the escalator, headed up, was about to walk off the last step at the top to safety, like two steps to freedom, when this huge fireball then whomped up up the escalator, hit the left side of his face, picked him up and threw him onto the floor. But as he put his hands down to stop himself, they melted. So triggers, sorry. Yeah, he he lost his fingers, his face. He had more than 30 operations. He was a musician, so that was his livelihood gone. 
it was an absolute disaster for him. Terrible. Then there's some mysteries around some of the victims in the fire. Six, 16 years after the fire, a mystery unknown victim known as victim 115, who, who was originally given a pauper's funeral with another unknown victim who was then discovered to be Ralph Humberstone. Both of them were in the same grave. Next to Ralph Humberstone, it said, unknown man. So at their funeral, Canon Douglas Bean, who was the vicar at St Pancras Church at the time, said, it's sad to think that two people can die and never be missed in our community. It's a reflection of city life and the age in which we live. So over time, forensics reconstructed his face using fragments from his skull. Interpol got involved and family members were reaching out, lots of different family members wondering if that was their, their relative. And eventually he was named as Alexander William Fallon, who was homeless at the time of the tragedy. Yeah. Age 73 when he died, burnt beyond recognition, hence oh. they couldn't tell what he looked like. Yeah. Half of all people who are over 50 in the capital only become homeless after their 50th birthday. And as it was with Mr. Fallon, it's personal bereavements that often trigger these things, particularly for men. So he had lost his wife, sadly. Oh. Do you know what? And then just couldn't so look after sad. himself. That's so sad. Yeah. So eventually, going back to the fire. So we had the first ambulances, which were quite delayed, arriving yeah. almost eight o'clock in the in the evening. So that's more than half an hour after it, after it all started. Quarter past eight, London Ambulance Service declares a major incident that alerts all the hospitals. And at 21.48, 9.48 in the evening, the fire was finally brought under control. Wow. Yeah. So London Transport, London Regional Transport, admitted liability for the fire and paid out more than $4.5 million to victims and families as compensation. Sadly for Quasi, as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. he was encouraged to go for more because he had to. his marriage broke up and he oh. had to care for a disabled child. But he lost. So he's ended up in a very bad way. It's quite tragic. How can he lose? How can he lose? I don't know. There's an article out there about it. It was just too heartbreaking to talk about. Efforts to improve London Underground since 1987 mean it's now considered one of the safest. So no worries, guys, when you're (laughs) trundling along. Safest in the world, according to the managing director, Mark Wilde. Well, he would say that, wouldn't he? But he also says... There isn't a month that goes by in my job that we don't reference the King's Cross fire. It had such a phenomenal and beneficial effect on the organisation. So out of a desperate tragedy, good things have actually come. So despite the drama, the tragedy, the loss of life, the loss of livelihood, the the devastation, we can now enjoy what what is now known as the safest public transport system in the world. But, you know, London has been beset by all sorts of problems relating to public transport, you know, with all the terrorist bombings. I remember when I first went to the UK, and this would have been like in the very early 90s, in the nothing compares to your days, <laughs> you know, there had been terrorist attacks, bombings, and... The, the tube was constantly shut down. I remember uh, my ex-boyfriend and I, we missed a, a flight because we literally couldn't get to Heathrow because everything had been shut down because there had been a backpack discovered or something. And yeah. you know, 80s people, and 90s were rife mm, for that, yeah. Yeah. And so the fact that this wasn't even connected to that, it was just really, was it act of God, you know? No, it was somebody who dropped a match in a wooden... <laughs> 
but you people know, think fire. up there for thinking. I know, but you know, and the, and the times have changed because I remember being shocked a at all of those wooden escalators, and b yeah. that they were those top ones. They were filled with like cigarette butts and matches and junk. Things. Yeah. It was disgusting. The same with all of the floors in the buses at that time as well. Yes. Because they were kind of um, grooved. So there were grooves Mm. that you were just... Things got caught in it. Yeah, it was grim, grim all Always siggy butts. Yeah. Yeah. But great story. No, it's not great, but I mean, like really informative. Thank you. I feel really a bit sad. I feel sad. It is sad. It is sad. People have lost their lives so that we can now enjoy safe metro systems. Obviously, with hindsight, these things make sense. But at the time, you know, it was a case of of suck it and see, you know, just go forth and see how it works. And yeah, let them smoke. It's fine. And oh, don't let them smoke because one... One tube station already went up. Yeah. Now no one can smoke on the tubes. Tragedies have to happen before change is actioned. You think about Grenfell Tower, all of yeah. that, all of those places in that shitty cheap cladding, and it took a massive tragedy for re- building yeah. regulations to be changed. So and are they, have they been? I don't know because they're still talking about mm. taking down the cladding and and recladding with safer materials. Mm. I don't think it's all been completed. No, I don't know. Oh, well, thank you for that. Wonderful, uplifting story. (laughs) So, Michelle, all you need to do now is get on a plane and just knock yourself out with Xanax or whatever it is. Whatever your tranquilizer of choice might be, and don't worry, don't worry it's if it's fine. going down. Because do you know what? Actually, it's not a bad idea. Because if the plane does go down, you don't want to be awake for that. You just no, want you to don't. be peacefully gliding off into into the energy, that- which I believe that you do anyway. Because I think for any air disaster, the oxygen is the first thing to go, yeah. and you just immediately pass out. I hope so. That would be the kindest way to go. But anyway, well. On that bright, bright thought. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, mate. Yeah. Well, look, great to see your face. And Geordie, you know what comes next. Yeah. Well, whatever you do. Wherever you bloody are. Just just keep eavesdropping. Eavesdropping. Eavesdropping, 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 e